I do not view it as a recognition of my own accomplishments, but rather as an affirmation of American leadership on behalf of aspirations held by people in all nations. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Today is Wednesday, October 9th. And on the podcast, we're going to talk about the rise of China and whether we should all be very afraid. But first, Alex, I believe you have in your hands the Planet Money Indicator. I do. The indicator is $30.7 billion. That, of course, is the trade deficit for the month of August. Of course. Of course. Meaning that the U.S., Cumulatively, all the people, companies, and governments uh, bought $30.7 billion more in stuff than we sold to people, companies, and governments overseas. That was less than $31.9 billion, mostly because we bought less oil. Now, interestingly, oil prices actually went up in August, but we bought less of it. So the oil portion was lower. So today is our monthly chat with Eurasia Group. We had a great plan. We we worked very carefully for today's chat, what we were going to discuss about the global political economic scene. And then all of a sudden, we got this huge piece of news right before we tracked. You're talking, of course, about John and Kate Gosselin calling a truce for their twin daughter's ninth birthday party. No, Alex. I'm talking about President Barack Obama winning the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> right. Yes. No, of course. I knew that. I was just uh, having a joke. Um, but uh, I actually saw this story online this morning as I was reading uh, my Yahoo News, as I, as I often do. And I saw the headline, and I was like, wait, did I switch over to the... Onion. I seriously, I saw, did I switch over to the Onion, that satirical news source? I had almost exactly the same experience. I turned on the radio this morning. I was listening to the local WNYC, the Takeaway, this morning radio show, and I was like, God, they're being really imprecise because they're making it sound like President Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they really it's should really be shocking. better writers. Yeah, <laughs> it's really yeah. shocking. Yeah. yeah. So, so, um, so of course, when we had Ian Bremmer, president of Eurasia Group, on, we knew we would have to ask him. Our special guest this month was Kishore Mahbubani. He's a longtime Singaporean diplomat, very well known uh, for his uh, insights into the rise of Asia. He is also uh, the dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University in Singapore. He wrote this book that has gotten a lot of attention called The New Asian Hemisphere, The Irresistible Shift of Global Power to the East. And uh, we asked him how he learned that President Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize. Somebody SMS me the news, and I must say I was shocked like everybody else. And when I shared it with all my friends, the first response was, what for? I mean, why, why did he get the Nobel Peace Prize? What has he done? And the tragedy here is that I think the Nobel Peace Prize Committee was trying in the, in, in, with very good intentions to honor Barack Obama, to recognize what a great leader he is. But sadly, they have in some ways uh, devalued the Nobel Peace Prize and undermined Barack Obama. How did they undermine Barack Obama? Well, I think, you know, to be fair to Obama, he said all the right things, you know. But, you know, at the end of the day, everybody judges you not by their words, but by your deeds and what you have accomplished. 
And this is why this is why I think really the the Nobel Peace Prize Committee has really damaged uh, Obama because you know what they 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 they, they are now forcing a public examination of what he has actually accomplished in the field of peace and foreign policy and that's not what he wants to do I mean, you don't you don't you don't have an audit done of your your activities if you don't have much to show for the audit you know you want to wait till you have lots of money in the bank and you say oh come and audit what i have done and so in that sense they're being the the nobel peace prize committee is being both cruel and unfair to Obama. So, Ian, where, where were you when you heard the news, and what was your initial thoughts? Oh, gosh, I think I was on the subway, actually. I shouldn't admit to that. Um, but, I, look, I, first of all, I, of course, agree with Keyshore um, that uh, it's not clear why you're providing the ward to Barack. I mean, when when he came to office, it was very clear that this was not a foreign policy president. His top ten priorities were all domestic. Um, and, uh, and, and that, frankly, one of the great advantages that he had as a president is in his first six months, he, he wasn't distracted. He didn't have to deal with any foreign policy crises at all. I mean, you know, the G2, as it stood with China, was basically a photo op. Uh, the G20 uh, meetings, lots of great things said, but not a hell of a lot accomplished. Um, you know, this was not a foreign policy president. He made some statements about, you know, sort of uh, getting the world free of nuclear weapons. Well, I mean, you know, the United Nations makes statements about having universal human rights, too. Um, neither of those two things are actually coming to fruition. So I think, you know, there are a lot of things that we can say that Obama uh, is doing a pretty decent job at. Um, the, the Nobel Peace Prize is absolutely not one of them. And I think that what this will do, especially for a president who is really over his skis with a much greater agenda than he can actually handle right now, he's already, I mean, he's got a speech on trade that's ready and they can't deliver it uh, because it was supposed to be, you know, given before the G20 at Pittsburgh and uh, health care was supposed to be done by August. But since it wasn't, they had to delay it. His agenda is already getting pushed back. This is fodder for people that are saying Obama is all fluff, no substance. Look at all the promises that he can't deliver. And, and so I really think the Nobel uh, Committee uh, quite, I'm sure, unintentionally has not helped President Obama one bit. One other thing Kishore mentioned, Adam, which was which I thought was interesting, is um, he was saying that basically this award is decided. You'd think the peace prize, it's like a whole bunch of peace experts out there. And he was saying it's actually decided by five former members of Norwegian parliament, what he said, a bunch of a bunch of retired Norwegian parliamentarians um, who he says really don't know actually what's going on in the world. That yeah, much. it's weird because, you know, the medicine Nobel is a lot of experts in medicine. The, you know, chemistry is experts in chemistry. But the Peace Prize is just a bunch of retired politicians in Norway, none of whom are known in international circles as particularly well aware of the human rights fights in various developing countries or, or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on now to our original plan. Uh, the topic we planned to discuss with Kishore and Ian was something we've been talking about a lot on the podcast, uh, China. The idea that China will lead the way out of this crisis. And if it does, what does that mean as it becomes more and more powerful in the global economy? Kishore Mahbubani, of course, has lived in Asia most of his life, and he's been watching the growth of Asian countries very closely. And his advice to us here in the U.S. is 
hey, get used to it. China is going to be the world leader soon. But I wanted to push back a little bit with him on this idea. I said, doesn't China still need us? We keep hearing that they need the U.S. more than we need them. They need consumers to buy their exports. They need U.S. dollars to stay strong. You must always make a distinction between the short term and the long term, okay? You're right. In the short term, there's no doubt whatsoever that China continues to need the U.S. in very profound ways. I mean, the U.S. is still ultimately the strongest economic power, ultimately the power that is guiding the global economic system, uh, ultimately the world's biggest market, uh, ultimately the place you go to if you want to invest your money and buy U.S. Treasury bills and so on and so forth. So there's no doubt that China doesn't want to rock the boat, okay? But in the long term, in the long term let there be no doubt, okay? that the one difference between America and the rest of the world is that the rest of the world is now preparing already for a world in which China will become the dominant power, right? I mean, the latest projection by Goldman Sachs is that by early, uh, as early as 2027, China is going to become the biggest, uh, has the biggest GNP in the world, you know? And if, if, the, if the UN continues to appreciate, then I think it may have happen even faster. So the rest of the world is not placing bets on the world of yesterday or the world of today, but on the world of tomorrow. And this is a psychological adjustment that, frankly, many Americans have not made yet. Ian, should we be scared? I, I, I think probably the single most common question that Alex and I get from you know, our friends and family and listeners about the global economy is, should we be scared of China? Uh, I think scared is the wrong term, um, but I do think that they're going to be a challenge, a much a much greater challenge than they have been. I mean, one way that I like to think about it is that in 2008 elections, um, we voted for Obama or McCain with absolutely no indication or concern about what their particular policy was on China. That will never happen again, right? In 2012, in 2016, in 2020, you will no longer have U.S. elections where China is not one of the most salient issues that will determine how people vote. So in that regard, it's not a question of fear, but this is going to become a very significant policy issue, and Americans generally have not yet wrapped their arms around that. Now, I certainly believe that the Chinese are going to continue or should continue to need the United States for a very long time. It doesn't mean they'll necessarily completely appreciate that. Um, you know, there's, there's no question the Chinese economy is growing quite a bit. Um, there are lots of things the Chinese don't do well, though, right? One is the military, and they're building their military, but they still don't have an aircraft carrier. The U.S. has 11 uh, a- aircraft carrier groups. Um, the entrepreneurialism that exists at the highest levels in the United States, the rule of law. I mean, Kishore is from Singapore. Singapore has extraordinary rule of law. They have extraordinary corporate governance. Chinese don't. Um, they don't have a lot of respect for patents and things like that. And I think that you know, as new technologies continue to grow, countries like the United States, the world's largest economy with a rule of law, an independent judiciary, and corporate governance – actually provides very significant advantages. So I do believe that there are a lot of countries that are waking up and saying, wow, China's the future. But I also think there are a lot of folks that are saying, if China is a big part of the future, we need to be very cautious and hedge against that. Now, Kishore, you're we're talking like it's inevitable, but I, I'm struck. When, when I go to China, I feel like the main thing I hear from political scientists and, and, and just folks on the street is 
this whole thing could fall apart, that uh, that there are serious governance issues. There's, I think, by China's own estimate, something like 50,000 public protests a year, some, some ridiculously huge number. Is it inevitable? I mean, I, yeah. I, I guess if you want to talk about fear, a China, mm. a failed state the size of China, mm. that, that's something to fear. Yeah. The key point I want to emphasize here is that the world that is coming is one that is outside the comfort zone of most Americans. And, you know, there is a kind of what I call an incestuous, self-referential, self-congratulatory discourse among Western intellectuals. They talk to each other. They point to all the weaknesses of China and say, gee, when is it going to fall apart? And, you know, as someone who's lived in Asia all my life for 60 years, I've been watching for 30 years predictions about how this cannot be true, this cannot be true. Yet for 30 years, China has delivered the fastest growing economy in the world. And there's one very, very important point which I think every listener of yours should absorb, okay? And this point is that there has been an explosion of cultural confidence in China and in Asia. Whereas, you know, when, when I was a child, no one in Asia would ever believe that Asia would have the largest economies in the world. Today, if you want to meet the most optimistic young people in the world, come to Asia. If you want to meet people who believe that tomorrow belongs to them, come to Asia. And even I, you know, and I'm 60 years old, I'm just absolutely stunned by the confidence of these young people. And, 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 and if you look at the hard data, okay, I just finished writing an article called Can China Innovate for the World Economic Forum Dalian Conference? And I was shocked to discover how innovative in many areas China, India, Korea, Japan, uh, even Philippines and Bangladesh are becoming. And that's all shocking news, you know, in terms of how they're changing the world. Can I just ask what might be a, a, a naive question here, but from the point of view of like just sort of like a non-policymaker, non-public intellectual, regular American, why, why, what, what do I have to fear from 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 a powerful China? Like, if if their economy continues to grow at the same pace, it seems like there might be more opportunities for American business in China as it continues to grow, as their as the middle class continues to to get larger. Um, it seems like that's only going to do good things for the American economy. As a as a regular person here, what what do I have to fear? Well, I mean, it, first of all, if the Chinese system stays intact as it is growing to this degree, which I think we should be somewhat skeptical of. But if it does, you won't have the same level of foreign direct investment. So the fact that China grows doesn't mean that we're able to equally take advantage of Chinese growth, because most of Chinese growth on the uh, economic side is going to be controlled or largely influenced by the state. So there will not be a level playing field between Western multinationals and the Chinese. And will that hurt me, though, still? I mean, well, that, that... that will reduce growth rates because it means that, look, for, the, for American corporations to succeed in a globalized world, you need access to capital, access to labor, uh, you need access to consumer markets. And if you're, if you're competing in an environment, and that's why globalization is great, right, for mm -hmm. American corporates, because you, have, because you have unfettered access in a relatively, in a regulated, but a relatively unfettered environment. When you're doing that in a state capitalist society, um, it becomes much more difficult to have access to all three. Right, right now we have access to two. It seems like we have access to capital and access to labor. 
but we don't have access to the Chinese consumer, basically. That's what you're saying? Um, I would say that increasingly we're going to have a difficult time with access to all three if the Chinese continue to grow and maintain the present system. But I do want to make one point here, which is that Kishore very correctly talks about and differentiates the short and the long term. And in the short term, the Chinese recognize that they really need the U.S. on all these fronts. In the long term, it's kind of open to question. And also, and, and I agree with that. Um, where I agree a little bit less, or where I think we have an interesting point of debate, um, is what happens to China over the long term. I mentioned the military already and the fact that over the foreseeable long term, so the next 20, 25 years, the U.S. will still be dominant militarily globally. I think we can predict that. Um, there are two other things that are worth talking about or thinking about briefly. The first is environmental degradation. Right? We all know that climate change is coming. We also know that China is absolutely destroying its environment at a pace that's really unheard of at that kind of scale. And some of this they can take care of. Okay, if they no longer have sufficient arable land and they have the money, they can import food. Water, not so sure. Right? And they are increasingly going to be up against extremely dangerous environmental forces. The government officials, give them credit, are aware of it. But that doesn't mean they can deal with it. And as we get out to 10, 15, 20 years, there is some real questions starting to emerge about the viability of the present system given those environmental constraints. The one other thing that I want to throw out there, and this is a, this is a pretty out there concept, but we know that it's going to take about 25 years to come up with something that replaces oil, right? That, that in order to get it you know, invested in and up to scale, that's clearly the case. What's very interesting... 25 years, hopefully. Uh, when you talk to the industry experts, that, that's what they basically think, right? About 25 years before, you have something significant that's really changing the nature of how we think about where global energy comes from. Now, over the course of the last 50 years, right, technology revolution has been this incredible decentralizing force, uh, it, making countries like Singapore, Kishore Singapore, much more viable and vibrant, right? Because you can be small and take advantage of those sorts of things. Um, but, but energy has been very centralizing. Now, what's very, very interesting interesting about every single thing that's being developed on the energy front is that it's decentralizing. Whether it's renewables like wind and solar or different types of, you know, sort of uh, bat battery capture systems, whatever it is we're looking at is decentralized. And when you move from a centralized energy system to a decentralized energy system, one thing that happens is the number of states that you have increases dramatically. Right? In other words, the viability of a state with 1.3 billion people will be under threat in a way that historically never has been. So will lots of other states. Frankly, the U.S. might be. But as we start thinking out in a world where technology is exploding as fast as it has, and let's face it, when we talk about year one to year 1800, you didn't have that kind of technology explosion. We start talking about 2035, 2040, 2050, the Goldman Sachs wacky numbers, then you have to realize that we're going to be unleashing some forces that make you want to question the viability of some of these models. Wow, you're blowing my mind, man. Thanks, dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I want to quickly, we want to get to questions hey, very Adam, soon. Can I, I want to briefly respond yeah. to... Sure, yeah. sure, of course, yeah. And, and I think uh, Ian is right. I mean, there, there can be many interesting points of debate with his. And, and I think it's important to ask... By the way, I should emphasize, I want America to succeed, okay? The world needs a strong America. We in Singapore want a strong America. But precisely because we want to see a strong America, we are very worried about the, the directions that America 
uh, is taking. I mean, uh, Ian is right when he speaks about the huge amount of uh, defense expenditures that the United States has. But that, of course, also reminds you of the Soviet Union, which had a very strong military and, and they were, which let its economy uh, implode. And the Chinese are very careful not to allow their defense expenditures to grow beyond a certain portion uh, of, their, of their GNP. And the other thing is that in the, in the field of science and technology and innovation, if you walk into uh, an American PhD classroom, okay, a PhD in science or technology R&D, you'll you be amazed to discover the number of Asian faces in that classroom. Now, the general assumption in the past was that, hey, most of these Asians are going to stay in the U.S., and guess what? The United States is accumulating the best brains in the world. But today, you, if you look at the statistics, again, the latest statistics, more and more are going home. And that shows a dramatic shift in terms of uh, uh, command of science and technology that is taking place. So I think we, we live in a rapidly changing world that is changing day by day, if not month by month and by, year by year. And I think you, the biggest mistake that any American policymaker can make today is to underestimate uh, how the rise of Asia is going to transform the world and to underestimate the challenges that America will face as a result of the rise of Asia. Well, we here at Plant Money certainly do not underestimate the importance of this story. We are in our planning for the year hoping to spend some time in China. And I got to say, this conversation made me really eager to do that. Our, we don't know exactly when. We don't know exactly how we're going to do it. But, but we're very excited about the idea of digging into China in a lot more depth in, in the coming year. Right. And I think that is going to do it for us today. Uh, be sure to check out our blog, npr.org slash money, where we have some really interesting and a little scary statistics from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Job Openings and Labor Turnover Summary. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>